Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. I think this was as much a pragmatic uh, standard as it was a theoretical standard. In those circumstances where you have longer-term performance obligations, it's more likely that you could have this disconnect between how the target measured things and how the acquirer is going to measure things. Those are my guests, PwC National Office Partners, Jay Celeber and Andrea Sol, discussing the recently issued ASU 2021-08 regarding accounting for contract assets and contract liabilities from contracts with customers and a business combination. So quite a mouthful, but they'll make it seem simple. This is actually my week for Jay and Andreas because Jay was my guest yesterday talking about SEC comment letters on Goodwill. And Andreas is joining me tomorrow to talk about the landscape of ESG reporting. So today's episode is bringing it all together. So we have a lot to cover. Let's get started. Andreas, Jay, so nice to have you both here, two of my favorite podcast guests, and it's been a while since you've been on together. So topic today is a little bit of a different one. Um, this is around, as you guys both well know, that at the end of October, FASB issued some new guidance that required contract assets and contract liabilities, also known as often deferred revenue, acquired in a business combination to be recognized and measured in accordance with 606. The revenue guidance instead of 805, the business combination guidance. So obviously not at fair value. So definitely a lot for us to talk about here. And Jay, maybe starting with you, what's this new standard about? And really, what was the genesis for the standard? Sure. Well, thanks for having us both. Both here, Heather. Always good to be back. Uh, so I would say that the key thing about the new standard, as you said, is it changes the measurement of acquired revenue contracts in a, in a business combination. So this is particularly tied into when the target company might have received cash from customers, but hadn't yet finished delivering all the goods and services yet at the time of the merger. So the acquirer effectively assumes all of those remaining deferred revenue obligations, uh, although it does also apply in the other direction where something may have been delivered but isn't billable yet. And there's some changes happening in both directions here. And as you said, under current GAAP, those are all measured at fair value in acquisition accounting. And for a lot of companies, fair value was often lower than what the target company had on its books for deferred revenue because the price that's been charged to the customer, which drove the amount that the target had on its books, included an element of selling effort. And fair value is theoretically what you would have to pay a third party to take over the remaining obligations to the customer, and that wouldn't have any selling effort. So what was happened is that companies often had to record acquired contract liabilities or deferred revenue at a lower amount than the target had recorded. And people often refer to this difference as a haircut. And then they would end up recording less revenue on those contracts going forward, as well as less than what would be recorded on comparable new contracts that would be entered into after the merger. So, all right. Well, Jay, that definitely raises many questions, which I think we'll hit on as, as we run through that. But before we get into some more specifics, 
Andreas, I'm going to go to you. And I know that in addition to measurement, there was even some questions around conceptually what customer obligations an acquirer should be recognizing in a business combination. So what's going on with that issue? I think historically, the philosophy has been that people would think about it in terms of what legal obligation is the acquirer stepping into. And then that legal obligation would be what you would value. And 606, the revenue standard introduced this new concept of a performance obligation, which is broader than a legal obligation. And so I'm not a revenue expert, but uh, but effectively the way I would describe it is there's customary practices and things that that companies do for their customers or their customer that has an expectation that they're going to do something over and above whatever the letter of the law and the contract um, kind of says. And that's sort of the difference between the two um, in practice. And so I, I guess what I would say is that that performance obligation concept maybe is a little different than the way people have thought about fair value, which is sort of, well, what would a market participant pay to take on or what would you have to pay a market participant to take on this obligation, which is probably much more oriented to the, uh, to the legal concept. So if you put all of these things together, right, which obligations do you include or not include and how do you measure it? And the notion that these fair value numbers might be different than sort of what your ongoing accounting for these items are. You put that all together and companies just didn't like the old accounting that they got for this fair value because it created a downward blip in revenue after the merger uh, to reflect sort of those haircuts or maybe differences in the obligations and the like. And so the companies would have to spend a lot of time explaining that to investors and analysts and explaining the trends and the like and why you had this blip. And so this guidance grew out of uh, that notion. So there was requests for maybe I'll call it simplification to try to make this a little bit easier. And, and since most companies were having to provide additional disclosures, either inside or outside of the financial statements to help explain this. This guidance tries to address that uh, by basically aligning the amount um, that gets recorded at purchase accounting with what you'd sort of be recording on an ongoing basis under the revenue guidance as if the acquirer had entered into the contract at its original date on its original term. So there's less inconsistency between those. All right. Well, I definitely still have a few theoretical questions about where we're going with this, but maybe let's go through some specifics and we can loop back to that because the thing that really stands out to me is it seems so simple. You're going to measure it in accordance with 606, but does that just mean you carry over what was there before or what does that really mean? Um, So so the answer is sort of yes, sort of, (laughs) or mostly in that regard. And we will get into that a a little bit more um, so what the guidance says is that you, you do sort of utilize the 606, the revenue model to calculate all the amounts. Uh, and that means that because the amount you're going to record in the acquisition accounting is following the same model that you're going to use for all your all of the ongoing revenue contracts, it is expected that the revenue uh, that's recorded after the acquisition will more closely align with what the target company was doing beforehand, as well as what the buyer is going to have afterwards. Although I think there are going to be some some differences. 
But mechanically, what the guidance is saying to do is that it says, take all of the original terms of the contract, like the price and the promised goods and services to the customer, and make the calculations and judgments that the revenue guidance in 606 requires at the time that that guidance tells you to do it. So that means things like determining the performance obligations and allocating uh, the overall transaction price to those different performance obligations based on the relative standalone selling prices. That's all done at the original contract date. But then you determine your measure of progress if it's an overtime revenue contract or whether performance has occurred if it's more point in time. Uh, you figure out that as well as any variable fees associated with the contract. You measure those as of the acquisition date, since those are updated every period under the 606 model. Now, that includes, for those familiar with the, the 606 revenue model, that includes con- applying what's referred to as a constraint on variable fees in that model, meaning how much are you allowed to recognize? And that's not a fair value number. That's more of a probability type of assessment. And the guidance in the revenue side also says that if there's any sales or usage-based royalties on intellectual property licenses, that you just don't estimate those. They just get recognized as the underlying sales occur. So that means, again, it's not fair value number. It just means that all subsequent royalties that arise on those contracts after the merger are going to be recognized as revenue by the acquirer after the merger. And then one last thing that comes out of this, uh, maybe we'll touch on sort of how, what, why this might be a difference, is that the buyer would have to figure out what its measure of progress would be as of the acquisition date on an overtime contract, like a services arrangement or a construction contract. And those estimates could be different than what the target company's estimates were, you know, especially if the buyer has a different cost structure or expects some synergies in the deal. All right. So definitely a lot there, Jay. But maybe if I summarize the answer to my original question, it's not just carryover basis. And I don't know, one of you, maybe Andreas, if you want to sort of explain more about that. Yeah, so maybe just to reiterate what, what Jay said, I mean, I think the FASB tried to make clear in the document that uh, this isn't an automatic just carryover basis from the target company. That said, you know, I think there's a view that in many cases you should be able to leverage a lot of what the uh, the target's already done. And so you know, there, there are clearly some, some differences. I and mean, obviously, if you had some concerns as to whether the target had properly applied 606, you certainly would need to uh, address that. Um, as Jay mentioned, there could be some differences in estimates. Um, the acquirer may have different 606 policies, and so you'd certainly need to adopt the uh, the acquirer's 606 policies going forward. But you know, may- maybe the more significant or subtle points may be best illustrated just by um, talking through a, a quick example. So you know, most transactions involve synergies, particularly cost synergies, right? That's often the basis for why the deal was done or and or why they paid the price that they uh, they did. And what, what that implies is that the cost structure of the business is going to or is expected to be different after the deal than it was before. Now, depending upon how quickly those synergy actions are taking, you know, the restructuring occurs, 
may dictate how soon the post-merger cost structure is perhaps fundamentally different than it was uh, before the transaction. So you'd have to think about how quickly are those are those synergies and those now reduced costs in place and how far out do the performance obligations extend. That'll kind of dictate how big of a deal this might be. But But in those circumstances, how the acquirer would estimate the you know, the sort of the costs related to this arrangement versus how the target did, they could be different. And then, you know, maybe the one other one that I would that I would highlight is you may have a situation where the target company wasn't applying gap. It could be a target outside the US or it could be a private company that was maybe doing tax or cash basis financials or something else. And certainly in those circumstances you obviously can't just take over the uh, the the numbers from the target. So sounds like this is not necessarily simplifying what the acquirer needs to do. Is that a fair point, Andreas? Well, I, I think what I would say is in those circumstances where you have longer term performance obligations, it's more likely that you could have this this disconnect between how the target measured things and how the acquirer is going to measure things. So in many cases, this might not be material if your performance obligations are satisfied relatively quickly after the, uh, you know, after the close of the deal. All right. That's really helpful. So then another thing that really stood out to me in looking at this and, you know, I had seen obviously our comment letters and everything else, but then when it was finally issued, just the fact that there were only a couple of paragraphs that actually got changed in the guidance, and then yet this pretty fundamental change for this, you know, this particular item. And so it's very curious if it is, you know, just look at those two paragraphs, you're done, you're going to understand everything you need to know, or what else would you say, Andreas, people should be thinking about? Well, I think you're spot on, Heather, that there's a lot more detail in the, the basis for conclusions, which I know people don't always focus on, but this is a, an example of where you really should read that because there, there are a lot of nuances in there and we're touching on some of them here on the podcast, but there's a lot more in there than in the actual body of the, uh, of the ASU. So with, with that said, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to segue to my favorite topic, which is, uh, which is intangible assets, as you, as you know. I knew you would get that in here, yes. So I, I think this is one of the subtleties of this standard, which is that FASB created an exception here to the fair value model, but only for performance obligations. Everything else in acquisition accounting is unchanged. And that includes intangible assets, which, of course, a significant one for many companies is the customer asset, which, of course, is derived from the uh, transactions with, uh, with, with customers. And so I think what we have to remember is that fair value is fair value. So if you change something in an accounting standard, like the treatment of deferred revenue, that doesn't economically change the value of other assets such as uh, intangibles. And so the, the thing people need to watch out for is if you change deferred revenue or contract liability, that is a part of working capital. And working capital is an input into all the other models that are used in performing the purchase price allocation. You know, that gets factored into how one determines the internal rate of return on the transaction, which 
drives the discount rate that's used to value many of the other assets. But it's also an input into the cash flow models because cash flow, right, is not a gap concept. So it's not driven by gap revenues. It's driven by actual cash to be collected in the future. And so what we've done here is we've put something now where we've got an additional difference between what I'll call gap cash flows and cash cash flows or economic cash flows. And so people have to be careful that when they make this adjustment, if, if it's significant, so the haircut used to be large and now you've eliminated it, that you don't indirectly without maybe even realizing it because you've changed working capital, change the value of the other assets in the, uh, in the acquisition, because that is not the intent. Again, if you look at the basis, FASB says that, well, hey, we expect that the offset to making this adjustment to the contract liability should generally end up in uh, as a as a change in the goodwill balance. So, Andreas, let me understand what you're saying there. Uh, you're saying that working capital is expected to turn into cash, and so that's part of the overall valuation model. And in the past, when deferred revenue was recorded at fair value, that was meant to approximate the cash that you would have had to pay to get somebody else to do that work for you as part of earning the revenue. And now under the new model, that doesn't quite work anymore. So that's that's the risk you're, you're talking about there. Yeah, that's right. So again, it's uh, cash flows are what drive values of all the other assets. Uh, they're valid using cash flow models. So you want to make sure all the inputs into those models are cash inputs and not, uh, you know, gap inputs. And in this case, we've sort of potentially in some cases created a difference between gap and future cash flows. So again, maybe an example, and this is maybe a bit of an extreme example, but I think it's a good one to illustrate the point. You know, imagine you acquired a company in say the media and entertainment business and right before the acquisition, or maybe not even right before the acquisition, sometime before the acquisition, the target company had outlicensed to a third party some symbolic IP. So the rights to use a cartoon character, for example, for for say 10 years. And in that case, the licensee prepaid the entire 10-year license upfront. Under the revenue standard, because it's symbolic IP, the acquiree would have spread that um, license fee over the 10 years. So if they had entered into that contract two years before the the merger, they would have still had eight years of um, sort of deferred revenue on the books. Now, you step into that as the acquirer and you're not going to collect any cash related to that uh, arrangement for the next eight years. You don't get cash related to that character again until that contract expires and you either start using it yourself or maybe you license it again to that same party or somebody else and you get you get paid. So you'd have a circumstance there where you'd have a deferred revenue balance on the books in acquisition accounting now under this new standard, but there'd be no cash inflows associated with that. So certainly you'd want to make sure that, that that reality of no cash flow was reflected in how you valued the other assets. Said differently, in that circumstance, that additional deferred revenue you're booking, the offset to that should probably be goodwill in most circumstances. 
Okay. So Andreas, the example definitely helped. So thank you for sharing that. But let me rewind to something you said that just caught my ear, which is, I think you said that there are differences between book cash flows and contract cash flows. And of course, since we're talking about cash flows, I'm assuming normally this would be the same. So can you explain? So it's always a danger when you have a valuation oriented person on an accounting call, but I, I will uh, I will try to explain it in plain English. So I think that the way I'm thinking about it is when most people build cash flow models, they start with the income statement. And obviously the revenue number that's in that income statement is a gap number. And in any particular period, that number is not necessarily the same as cash collected from customers in that period. And that cash collected from customers or if you're projecting forward, cash expected to be collected from customers versus gap um, revenue in that period. They're not necessarily the same thing. And some of the items we've been discussing on this on this podcast are one of the reasons why they're, those numbers are not the same. So that's what I mean by sort of, I'll call them accounting cash flows on the one side and economic cash flows on the uh, on the other side. Hopefully that's a little clearer than my shorthand. Okay. I think that makes sense. And I, I know, Jay, you might have something to add here too. Well, I think it's I, maybe for, for those of us not in the valuation space, I might just sort of con, con, con describe it as sort of book revenue versus cash flows, right? Where clearly this model is creating more book revenue that isn't necessarily generating cash flows or a proxy for what those cash flows would be. And so I think the risk that I hear Andreas describing that is, I think is a good good one to keep in mind is that if your models, as they probably have historically been, are sort of you know, built off of book revenue and book revenue projections, that you have to be careful to make sure that you allow for appropriate adjustments to kind of back out from this higher book revenue that this new guidance will create down to kind of real cash flows. All right. Well, hopefully the point of the podcast is for people to learn things they won't learn just from reading the in-depth. So hopefully that little segue into valuation will be of interest uh, to our listeners. Definitely. I, I thought it was interesting. So thank you for that. So if we keep going, one of the things I saw that we talked about in the standard or the feds we talked about was this notion of off-market contracts. So what's what are they talking about there? So Heather, the, the terms of the contract that were signed with the customer originally, those may not be reflective of market conditions at the time that the acquisition closes. And in those circumstances, the ASU is pretty clear that what the company needs to do is to measure a unfavorable liability or a favorable asset and book those as a separate unit of account, separate and distinct from the contract asset and contract liability and separate and distinct from any intangibles that would otherwise be recorded related to the uh, the contracts. And that's another reason why revenue might be different going forward than it would be if you just enter into the contract itself, yourself, because we generally believe that any of those off-market assets or liabilities that you book and purchase accounting, those would get amortized to revenue over time to kind of you know, offset the, the the amount of cash that you have coming in under the contract going forward. You know, one other thing that we're seeing too, Heather, is uh, it's a little bit more around deferred costs than true intangible assets. We, but we get questions about the impact of upfront payments that the target company might have made to customers before the merger uh, in order to induce a customer to sign a contract for a period of time. 
Now, the target company might very well have deferred those and was amortizing them against revenue that was coming from that customer under the contract. That's the that's the 606 model for those. But in this new guidance, since that's not specifically addressed in the scope of those two paragraphs that you, uh, you alluded to here, uh, the thought is that there isn't anything special to do with those and companies would continue to do what they've generally been doing on that, which, which generally means that that's just sort of baked into the value or part of the customer relationship intangibles, right? You have those customers because whatever you've done to get those customers, and that's part of the value inherent in those relationships. Although one nuance is that if they're entered into, if these arrangements are entered into shortly before the merger and perhaps at the direction of the acquirer, then that could be viewed as a payment to a customer that sort of, you know, the, the the acquirer directed and is outside the bounds of what is part of the purchase accounting. And that would be recognized against revenue over the contract term because that would be viewed like the acquirer had paid that money directly to get that customer. And that would be viewed as a reduction of revenue over time. Okay. So Jay, let me just make sure, jump in here, make sure I understand what we're saying. So in this particular case, we are, you know, if we, if we take a specific example, we may have had a customer that we have these contract assets and liabilities on the books. And then in addition, there was some amount of deferred costs related specifically to this contract. And even though those contract asset and liabilities would come over in some form, not carry over, but in some form, we wouldn't typically expect this separate deferred costs to sort of come over on its own because it would be included as part of the customer relationship, subject to maybe special circumstance if it was very close to the acquisition date. Is that fair summary? I think that's right. That's right, Heather. That that there are the the target company might very well have other deferred costs on their books that are tied into the customer contract situation and have been you know, being recognized under their six hundred six model that won't necessarily carry over or it's not viewed as an asset that the acquirer would record on its own. It just kind of gets factored into kind of the rest of the intangible assets that, that Andreas was describing. So then thank you for that clarification. I think good thing to highlight. So then I know that there, you know, as we've said, there's these broader impacts, but if you kind of put this all together, so I know you, you both have spent time studying this what would you convey to our listeners are the major impacts? And Jay, I'll start with you on that. Well, I would say the big picture is that for most situations, there's going to be more revenue recognized subsequent to the merger under the new guidance as compared to the old guidance. And it's for all the reasons we've been talking about. You don't have to do that fair value haircut for a lot of the deferred revenue uh, if you if you've licensed functional intellectual property for royalties, that will all get recognized as revenue after the merger. And as Andreas, you had said before, if you've licensed symbolic IP and gotten paid for it uh, beforehand, all of that or all the remaining period of time of that revenue is going to come in post merger as well, whereas it probably wouldn't have necessarily been put on the books at, at fair at, under a fair value model. You really wouldn't have had much that you would be viewed to still have to do for those kinds of licenses. 
Jay, maybe just to add to that, the anticipated future royalties related to a functional IP situation, those would still end up in the uh, value of some sort of a intangible asset on a sort of expected royalty to be collected in the future type basis. Um, the, the other thing that maybe, Heather, I would just reemphasize is in most circumstances, it is goodwill that will be the other side of the transaction because, again, the fair value, all the other assets are still at fair value and the fair value is not changed or you need to make sure mechanically that you don't accidentally change it by by virtue of applying this new guidance. All right. That's helpful. So sticking with the practical, I know that effective date and transition is also of interest clearly to our listeners and particularly in this case, because hopefully if people have been listening carefully that, you know, at the end, once you adopt this, you are going to have likely more revenue and perhaps less fair value information to calculate. And so that you know, companies are interested in potentially early adopting because from the timing and effective dates, this standard is effective for calendar year end public business entities in 2023. So it's more than a full year away. But since there is early adoption permitted, what are you guys hearing in terms of whether or not companies are planning to early adopt? Well, we've certainly been hearing a lot already. And, you know, as you said, it, it can be adopted early including in any interim period, which really means as soon as now for any financial statements that haven't been issued yet. Uh, So we have been hearing people uh, talking about wanting to adopt it here in 2021 and uh, let's say the fourth quarter, perhaps, uh, so that they can incorporate the the new guidance in that. But the kind of the catch to it is it does have to be applied retrospectively to the beginning of the year of adoption. So then Jay, from a practical point of view, if I put myself in the shoes of a controller or an auto partner, uh, having to go back, seems like there could be some operational issues, particularly, I mean, business combination accounting is not the easiest area to begin with. Right. No, that's definitely true, Heather. Uh, th- what that means when you have to retrospectively recast it to the beginning of the year means that any merger that's closed since the beginning of the year uh, would have to get recalculated and recast to reflect this new guidance. So unwind what you've already been doing and uh, reporting on and recast it under the new guidance. So and that would mean if a calendar year company wants to adopt the new guidance in the fourth quarter of 2021, they would have to go back and apply it to any business combinations that have occurred since January 1st of 2021 and, and by the way, because we've been getting questions about this too, that means mergers that closed after that date, um, not ones that may be older, like from 2020, but still had the measurement period open as of January 1st, 2021. It, it doesn't include that. It, it has to be acquisitions that close after uh, the adoption date. But for those, you have to go back and change all your numbers. And so that's not necessarily a simple or a uh, quick process, right? Because you have, have to go back and recalculate all the amounts and that's going to change revenue and that's going to change goodwill. Maybe it changes some amount of intangibles for the off-market contracts or things like that. Then you have to think about all the impairment considerations that are affected by that. 
there's probably some income tax impacts, there's impact on segments, there's impact on EPS. So there's a lot to think through depending on how material of acquisitions you might have done earlier in the year uh, before you make the decision that you're going to go back and adopt it uh, retrospectively. All right. So definitely a lot to think about there, Jay. And I guess, Andreas, if you've thought about adoption of the standard or any other sort of implementation issues with the standard, anything else that you would highlight? Well, there's a few other things that we haven't touched on that are in the standard and certainly the in-depth that we publish that's available on Viewpoint, and I think will be in the show notes, goes through a number of those. So there are a number of practical expedients in the standard. There's some considerations around the just the scope of the guidance. Jay touched on the goodwill impairment risk. So there's some discussion in there about the fact that you may have some you're booking additional goodwill in most cases um, if you no longer have this haircut. And does that potentially create an enhanced risk of goodwill impairment going forward? So that's as well discussed in those uh, materials. Finally, I think certainly the in-depth that we published has a couple of useful examples in it that uh, I would suggest people take a look at if you're going to be implementing this. Okay. And then before we get to the fun part of uh, the podcast, which since you guys are recurring guests, you know, when I get to stump you, I do have a question that may stump you anyway, which is more theoretical question, a couple of theoretical questions, actually kind of rewinding all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. And the first part is, you know, so I was listening to kind of talk about the standard and this idea that we were moving away from fair value, at least in this one particular circumstance. You know, again, if someone's listening and thinking like sort of why, like why was this put aside some of the, um, you know, it, maybe it made it easier, but from a more theoretical point of view, what is the basis for this? Any short answer you can give or is that a whole other podcast? I think it is a challenge, right? I mean, anytime you're breaking away from the conceptual notion of acquisition accounting, which is all at fair value, it is a challenge. Um, Now, there are other parts of acquisition accounting that are not at fair value either. There's some other exceptions to that already. So it's not like this was the first time we've ever addressed that. I do think that a lot of this was about pragmatism uh, on the board's part, right? They certainly both companies and users of financial statements uh, often said that they really struggled to understand what I think I call the blip in revenue that took place. And, and a lot of energy was spent by all parties in trying to explain that and help people better understand the future trend lines uh, after that kind of initial rollout of, of the chain, the impact on deferred revenue. So I think this was as much a pragmatic uh, standard as it was a theoretical standard. All right. And then related question, and maybe Andreas, if you want to add to Jay and or answer this one, would you, either of you expect us to see either more of this or that people are going to try to apply this to other types of assets by analogy or other types of assets and liabilities by analogy? Or what do you think? Well, if, if you're asking whether we think that, um, they're going to apply sort of a carryover type model to more things in, in an acquisition. I don't think there's anything on the horizon that would suggest that that's, uh, that that's the case. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we moved away from carryover, which was the old pooling model, to the, to the fair value model in the first place. And I think most of those reasons are still valid. Again, in the basis, they, the board talks a little bit about why 
they think some of the concerns that were raised in the old pooling days as it relates to the revenue section may not be as extreme anymore. Basically, that it's harder to buy revenue these days than it was in the past because there's some things in 606 that reduce those situations where you have a large deferred revenue balance, but there's not really anything meaningful left to do. And that wasn't the case under the old revenue model. And so the carryover concern was a little less acute in their mind than it would have been a couple of years ago. But I don't think that concept carries over towards intangibles or property plant equipment or some of the other things that get remeasured in, a, in an acquisition. Or inventory, which which was one of the items that got brought up in some comment letters, was the same the same practical issue or pragmatic issue comes up with writing inventory up to fair value and then taking a higher amount of cogs for the first few periods after the acquisition, uh, same as the revenue blip. So there was some requests to consider expanding it to inventory, but as Andrea said, as of, at the moment, uh, the FASB doesn't have any anything on their horizon to address that or any other of the topics that, uh, that, that uh, Andrea's mentioned. Which I think, Jay, you make a very good point there on the on the inventory, because one thing people should remember is that while this new guidance sort of eliminates the revenue blip, it will maybe further enhance the gross margin blip because you're changing the revenue number, but you're leaving cost of goods sold alone. And so as you think about speaking to your analyst community, you have to remember that there is still a distortion for some period of time post-close as these acquisition accounting adjustments flow through. So this doesn't make all of that go away. All right. Very helpful. Hopefully um, our listeners found that helpful too. But I think the bottom line from you guys is uh, it, even if you are excited about this this accounting, don't try applying it to other areas in your business combination. It is not meant to um, be changing things more broadly other than as we talked about. So with that, let's get to the more fun part of this podcast. I think we're ready. Our listeners are probably ready too. Always happy to stump the two of you and I have some particularly good questions today. Um, so this could maybe be sort of like Jeopardy and whoever can answer first. I'm hoping you guys both have some good guesses. So first one is what was the largest ever acquisition? That might be a trick question because I think the largest acquisition might have been when Verizon bought out Vodafone in Verizon Wireless. That was like 140 or 150 billion, but it technically wasn't an acquisition because they were already consolidating it. So it was just a non-controlling interest transaction within equity. All right, Jay, any other guesses or should we let Andreas's answer stand? I, I will defer to, the, uh, to, to Andreas. All right. So I'll give partial credit to Andreas for his Vodafone response. In 1999, Vodafone AirTouch PLC took over Mansman at $183 billion, which would be $284 billion adjusted for inflation. So second one, this one's also, um, I think this one you guys might be able to get. So get ready to answer fast. 
what game-changing consumer electronics device was released the same year as FAS 141? And before you answer for our listeners, especially younger listeners, that is the precursor to ASC 805. But 141, not 141R. PlayStation. All right. Jay? I will say, I'm trying to decide between the iPod and the iPhone. I think... uh, iPhone. I'm going to go with the iPhone. All right. Good guesses from both of you for both those questions. Fact check. So I'll give partial credit to Jay for his guess. The Apple iPhone was released in 2007, the same year as FAS 141R, which I explicitly said I was not asking about. Finally, in case you're wondering, the first PlayStation goes all the way back to 1994 hard to believe it's been almost 30 years since it was issued. And as a total aside, if you're wondering if supply chain issues are real, try buying the current version, PlayStation 5. It's always great to have the two of you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. That wraps up our bonus episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you have more questions on this new standard, then check out this episode's show notes for more resources. And like I said at the beginning, check out yesterday's episode on SEC comment letters on Goodwill for more from Jay and tomorrow's episode on ESG landscape for more from Andreas. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, Sign up for a newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.